Our passage today comes from 1 John, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Uh, Today is Family Sunday, so kids, you will um, be in here during the sermon. Um, but if you need to um, sneak out and grab drawing stuff, you are more than welcome to um, run and grab a clipboard and paper. Um, yeah. Young Christians, little theologians, today as we are uh, working through this sermon, working through this passage, I want you to think about something that you share in common with your friends and I want you to draw a picture about it. Maybe it's you're on the same soccer team or basketball team. Maybe it's that you like to, I am totally blanking on what kids do, play video games together. Maybe it's a video game. Maybe it's jumping on the trampoline. What is something that you share in common with your friends, something that brings you together? Maybe it's just school. Your parents send you to the same place and you happen to be in the same physical place and that's how you became friends with someone. So I want you to draw me a picture of what it is that creates that common bond with your friends. And then I want you to listen today to why we as the church come together? What is it that we share in common? What is it that brings us together in fellowship here in this church? Well, today we are looking at 1 John. Now, if you are not getting your dose, weekly dose of Justin's preaching, then come tomorrow night because Justin will be preaching. But today I have the privilege to bring to you the word of God from 1 John. Now, if you remember, a few weeks ago, we began to look at this book, and we began to look at a few of the themes in this letter. First, we saw that this letter has to do with assurance. How do we know that we are saved? How do we know that we have eternal life? How do we know that we know the one in whom eternal life is found? John writes in chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance. Second, we saw that John is writing this letter to these churches that they may know joy, that they may see how joy flows out of the gospel, how joy is part and parcel of the Christian life. And that's a theme that we're going to examine especially today, as we saw in verse 4 of our passage today. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So bearing these themes in mind, bearing these ideas in mind, we turn now to the first four verses of this letter. Now, unlike most of the letters in the New Testament, John doesn't begin with the usual salutations and address of who he's writing to and who, he's, who is writing, but rather, these four verses serve to set the theological framework for the rest of the letter. 
These are the theological foundations upon which all of the rest of this letter will be built and how he will develop the themes of assurance and joy. And so I think they're really important that we get them right, that we see them right. And so we begin with the first two verses with John's specific view of Jesus that we have to wrestle with today. John opens his letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. There's a specific view of Jesus that John is trying to draw out in these verses. He wants us to see and understand Christ, the eternal, and Christ, the incarnate. But before we look into those in particular, I might first need to convince you that John is, in fact, discussing Jesus. Because he begins with a rather ambiguous opening phrase. He says, that which was from the beginning. But the opening phrase also calls to mind the first verses in John's gospel, the same author. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As in those verses, John draws us in with ambiguity. Ambiguity, that which was from the beginning. What is that? Who is that? That which was from the beginning, the life was made manifest. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. So not only do the parallels with John's gospel bear a remarkable similarity, but we're drawn from the ambiguous, kind of amorphous description of the eternal into the personal, clearly defined person of the Son of God who has been with God the Father from the beginning. But more telling of John's description is of Christ, uh, that it is Jesus, is that it is Christ incarnate, Christ in the flesh, Christ in the person. John wants you to know. He repeats himself, and it's circular. He wants you to clearly see that this is not merely a spiritual abstract idea. No, this is Christ incarnate, God in human flesh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is saying we actually saw the eternal. We saw that which was from the beginning. We actually touched and heard from him who was and is with the Father. This is the Christ. This is Jesus. So now the question arises, why is John so keen to draw out these two particular characteristics of Jesus in these opening verses? The first way to look at an answer to that question is to consider the context into which John is writing this letter. Remember, if you will, that this church or group of churches, perhaps, seems to be facing a situation where there's a number of people who have left the church and are espousing a number of ideas that we, for the sake of simplicity, are just going to call Gnosticism. Now, it's perhaps better called like proto-Gnosticism or something like that, because Gnosticism didn't really come fully orbed until the second century. And even then, we're kind of trying to uh, assign an amorphous set of ideas, a non-doctrinal set of ideas, a particular set of uh, rules. But for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to call it Gnosticism. So set my caveat aside. Bear with me. Uh, One of the primary ideas of Gnosticism is that matter, the physical reality, is fundamentally evil. 
And therefore, the pursuit of the Gnostic is to overcome matter and achieve some spiritual um, knowledge, some special knowledge, a special gnosis. And as we'll explore in the coming passages, we'll see that John is specifically calling out some of these beliefs and inferences from these beliefs. But for now, in these first two verses, I think that we can see that John is keen to draw out the internality and the incarnation of Christ specifically to set the doctrinal stage against which he will be engaging with these ideas. He's saying, you are trying to find that special knowledge that special understanding of the eternal, that escape from the physical universe, the escape from the evil material? Well, let me tell you about Jesus, who is the one eternal, the one who is the source and content of all special knowledge. But he isn't far removed from this reality. No, my friends, he came down, he took on that flesh that you think is evil. I saw him, I touched him, the eternal one in the flesh. And I think it's really important that we keep that historical context uh, saturated in our minds because that's precisely the context in which John is intending to engage in this passage. But I think there's another aspect to why this dual description of Christ as eternal and Christ the incarnate is important to us as readers. Let me see if I can explain. One of my favorite lines from Nietzsche, the nihilistic philosopher, is thus do the gods justify the life of man. They themselves live it. The only satisfactory theodicy. The only satisfactory theodicy. That is the only satisfactory of understanding how a good um, God could allow evil and suffering in the world. And the only way that we can understand it, the only satisfactory theodicy is that the gods live the lives of man. Now, ironically, Nietzsche in this passage is talking about the Greek gods. and Totally missed the Christian God incarnate. But the reason that this quote is so poignant is it gets precisely at the problem that we as humans continue to face to this day. We are confronted and we are confounded by a God who is both eternal, transcendent, way away out there, and simultaneously who is incarnate, present, loving, caring, and attentive to our every need. We as humans are so easily enthralled with one of these at the expense of the others. Either we believe in the great out there, the thing that created and sustains, the thing that existed and will continue to exist after, the thing that created each mote of dust and each cosmic explosion. But if we can conceive of that, then we struggle to conceive of that thing, that being, fitting through our front door and sitting down to have coffee with us. Or perhaps on the flip side, in these modern times, we live, as James K.A. Smith describes, under a brass heaven ensconced in imminence. We live in the twilight of both gods and idols, but their ghosts have refused to depart. And every once in a while, we might be surprised to find ourselves tempted by belief, by intimations of transcendence. On the other hand, even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. Which is to say that perhaps we don't have too much trouble with the incarnate Christ, the one who came and walked and talked on this earth. After all, he had a lot of wise words to share with all, all of us, didn't he? I mean, we live in an age of sages and gurus, of self-help experts and synergistic mentors. We might not be concerned with the old Gnostic concern with matter. We've learned better. We've realized that the real problem isn't matter, it's the mundane. 
don't need to look way out there for the answers. The answers are in here, in there, right inside. That's all we got to do to look and find the answers. My friends, all of this is simply a new guise on the old Gnosticism. And that means that we are confronted by this picture of Jesus that John is painting for us. Jesus is both eternal and incarnate. The transcendent is banging at the door. There's not mere intimations of the transcendent. God is wrenching open our eminent frame. He will not allow us to put on our blinders and our earmuffs to the reality of eternity in flesh standing before us. My friends, John's opening lines should cause each of us to look anew at Christ. Each of us has a temptation to see only Christ the eternal or Christ the incarnate. Each of us has the proclivity to attempt to box out part of the real Christ. And John will not allow us to do so. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Do you see Jesus? Jesus the eternal and Jesus the incarnate? What's interesting as we look at these first three verses is that the verb is finally here in verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John's saying all of this, all of this experience, all of this person, this Jesus who is both eternal sitting with God, the Father giver of eternal life, and the one who came and ate dinner with me and lived life with me and loved me and gave his life for me, all of this, all of this, we proclaim all of that to you, my friends. And so why does John proclaim it? He tells us, continuing in verse 3, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Fellowship and joy. I proclaim these things that you may have fellowship and joy. We'll look at each of these. Why do you proclaim something? Why do you tell someone about something? I asked myself that question and immediately the cynical side of me said that we do that because we want to vindicate ourselves and prove ourselves right and just feel that little bit of pride that, ah, yes, I am right. I think that can be true. But I think there's other times that we're proclaiming something just in order to establish common grounds, common commitments. Just yesterday, I was wearing my Liverpool jersey. And by wearing it, in essence, I was proclaiming, go Liverpool! Now they happen to be playing right now, so I had to sneak that in. But... As I was leaving Chick-fil-A yesterday, someone struck up a conversation with me and how they told me how they loved my jersey and loved Liverpool and they wanted to share that with me. And on the very basis of that shared commitment, that shared joy, that shared love, we had a great conversation. If I may be so trite, we had a moment of fellowship. John is saying here that his proclamation of the theology of Christ, his Christology, is the basis for his readers to enter into fellowship with him. Now, don't miss this, friends. John is saying our theology is incredibly important. 
because it serves as the very foundation about which we come together, that we pray together, that we worship together, that we fellowship together. And if that is the case, then it's vital that we know our theology. Each week, Justin invites the children to join in the sermon calling them little theologians. Why does he do that? It's because all of us, even the kids, we are all doing theology as we are sitting here and as we are going out there and how we are listening or not listening and how we are orienting our thoughts and our minds away or towards God. But more than that, if we are not doing formal theology, we are doing informal theology. If we are not thinking about how John is calling us to consider Christ as both the eternal and the incarnate, then we are doing the theology of how Christ is either the eternal or the incarnate. There are theological suppositions in all of our thinking and in all of our actions. And John is making sure that we recognize the deep, deep significance that lies our thinking in all of these matters. But more than that, if our theology is important and it serves as the basis of our fellowship, that also means that we need to be engaging in it with one another. It may seem the nice and the courteous thing to do to avoid issues of theology, like avoiding politics and religion at the Thanksgiving table. But if we risk not engaging with one another when issues of theology arise, we risk our very fellowship together. If we are not willing to engage in that conversation with one another. My friends, this is a high calling on each of us. It's a high calling on me and it's a high calling on you. It requires that we are vigilant and careful in our thinking, that we are willing to call one another out in love, that we are willing to put our fears of politeness to the side, that we might dive into incredibly awkward conversations. Let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that every matter is worth approaching. If we spent all our time fighting about the theology of drapes and linens, we would hardly have time to enjoy one another. But what I am saying, friends, is that if there is a matter of theology on which you think a brother or sister is way off base, if there is a matter of theology on which you think that I am sorely mistaken, if there's a matter of theology that you think that Justin or another elder or the session is way off base, then it is each of our responsibilities to get them corrected to bring them up, to engage with them. And we want that opportunity. I want that opportunity to be called out and to think well about each of those. My friends, we'll never have perfect identity on all matters of theology. But the reason that we can come together on a Sunday, the reason that we can join together here is that on the matters of true importance, we have common belief. So friends, pursue good theology. But there's another reason that strikes me for why we should consider our theology well. <clears throat> Fellowshipping is natural. We all want to find a few people, a group to which we can belong and feel connected. But as we have grown further and further isolated from one another, we have developed a proclivity to form what Ben Sass calls anti-tribes. He writes, people yearn to belong. <clears throat> Excuse me. They want to be a part of a tribe, to have roots. That desire will never be stamped out of the human heart. What it means, though, is that when healthy forms of belonging vanish, people will turn to more troubling forms. This leads to the rise of anti-tribes. We're meant to be for things and people, but absent that, most of us will choose to be against things and people, together rather than be alone. 
If we do not unite on the basis of the things that bring us together, if we don't form our social bonds and attachments on the basis of what we believe, if our church is not defined by what we do believe, then we risk our social bonds being established on the basis of what we don't believe, of what we are against. Do you see that? Do you see how tempting it is to define ourselves by what we are against rather than what we are for? What we are believing for rather than what we are believing against? You see, the biggest problem is that these bonds quickly dissolve. These bonds of anti-belief, they quickly dissolve. Because if we are all sitting here being defined by certain anti-beliefs, then when your brother or sister has a different belief with which you uh, disagree, you can no longer have any fellowship. And at that point, our theology of drapes and linens will allow itself to divide each of us. And like the Dr. Seuss classic, we'll end up in butter-side-up and butter-side-down camps. So instead, we must think well about what we do believe, what we are for. What are those theological grounds that form common bonds of fellowship? And John begins with Christology, for that is the basis of fellowship with his brothers and sisters. But if theology is important, then ontology, the substance of our being, is more important. John writes, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Not only is our fellowship with our brothers and sisters, but our fellowship is with God himself, with Christ, the Son of God, the eternal one who put on flesh. How can it be that we can have fellowship with God Almighty? There's a story in Exodus where Moses wants to see God. He says, let me see your face. And God says, I can't show you my face because you would surely die. But let me do this. I'm going to put you in this cleft in the rock and I'm going to put my hand over you. And then as I'm passing by, you'll see just a glimpse of my back, of my literally, he says, my backside. And through that crack, that will be enough. And sure enough, we go through this and Moses then comes back to the Israelites and the Israelites say, we can't look at you, Moses. Your face is shining because you have seen the glory of God. How can we have fellowship with a God like that? What does Paul say to the Corinthian church then in the New Testament? He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The very glory of God was in the face of Christ. God has allowed this glory to shine on our hearts, on your hearts. But again, we ask, how can this be? If God is correct when he writes to the Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then how can John be correct that we have fellowship with God? Now, each of you theologians know well, having listened carefully to Romans, the sermons through Roman, the answer is that through Christ, through his death and his resurrection, he has reconciled us, dirty, wretched sinners though we are, to God, the perfect one whose backside made Moses' face to shine. Paul continues in chapter 5 of Romans, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him by the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What is the substance of this reconciliation? Is it that we are now thinking the right things? 
Is it that we have oriented our feelings and emotions in the right way? Is it that we do the right things now? Is it that we got our theology all aligned? We had the right experiences? No, my friends. Far more fundamentally than that, we have been changed. We have been altered. The very substance of our being has been reconciled to God. Our very being, our very ontology has been changed so that we can now have the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ shining on our hearts. And my friends, this is the basis of our fellowship. Our basis is on the ontology. Each of you has been fundamentally altered so that you are no longer an enemy of God, but a friend. You are no longer an alien and a stranger to God, but you are an adopted son or daughter. And if that is true, how much more does that mean for our fellowship? Our corporate coming together, the grounds for our fellowship, the common bonds that unite us are not merely common theology, but common ontology. We are united to Christ and through Christ to one another. And if this is so, then no matter the theological difficulty, we can overcome the difficulty because the very substance of our being has been united. Theology matters, my friends, but ontology matters more. There's a whole lot more to discuss and explore about our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another, but we do run short on time. That which we have seen and heard, which we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with Father, with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim Christ that we might have fellowship. But not only does John proclaim Christ for fellowship, we continue in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now the R in this verse might be a little bit uh, confusing. John is using, John could be using the authorial, uh, yeah, John could be using the authorial we when he's saying we are writing these things so that our joy, the ones who are writing this letter, our joy can be complete. But notice the progression as we work our way through these four verses. First, John is saying, we heard, that is, we touched, we saw, we felt. And who is that? That's the apostles, the one who were with Jesus, not the recipients of the letter. We saw, we felt, we saw, we touched, we engaged with the incarnate Christ, and we proclaim to you. So John and the apostles proclaim to this church, we proclaim to you, that we all, Collectively, John and the apostles and the church, we proclaim to you that we all might have fellowship. And therefore, continuing that understanding, John is saying, we are writing these things so that our joy, all of our joy, mine who is writing and the apostles with me and you, the church who are reading this letter, I am writing these things so that all of our joy, all of our joy, yours and mine may be complete. But what does it mean for our joy to be complete? Let me see if I can illustrate an answer to that question. There's a commercial that I've seen a few times recently, and I really enjoy it. Uh, there's a, you see a guy, you know, quietly tiptoeing out of bed and tiptoeing around the dog and around the toys. And, and then you see a, an, old, an old man who's going down into the basement and turning the lights on. And then you see a group of guys who are getting together in this empty, dark, abandoned gymnasium, pulling up a few chairs next to a TV. It's kind of funky. And then you see a guy sitting in his car looking at his phone. And it's kind of depressing, kind of sad, kind of lonely. 
But then as the commercial progresses, you see that, you know, there are people like wearing jerseys and they're getting jerseys. Um, And then suddenly, all together, you know, you see someone score a goal on one of the TV screens and everyone stands up and cheers and is super enthusiastic. And this is a commercial for English Premier League soccer. And the reason I love it is because, you see, it's about seven hours ahead. And so there's times where I'll get up at 5.30 in the morning on a Saturday to watch a game live because I really want to see it. I get some pleasure and some joy from watching this soccer game at 5.30 in the morning. And the house is totally quiet, and I am totally by myself. But I love this commercial because it points to the fact that there's a whole bunch of other people that have a little bit of joy in that too and are up with me at 5.30 in the morning all around the world celebrating this tiny bit of joy with me. And just like we talk about how time can wrap in on itself so that times that are chronologically far apart are close together, so too in space. Space can be wrapped together such that I can be close to someone who is celebrating that similar joy at a similar time. There's a real sense in which my joy is made more abundant, more full in the mutual recognition of other crazy heads that are up at 5.30 to watch soccer. So you see, my friends, our joy is not merely in something. It is made complete in the sharing of that something with someone else. It's the sharing of that that makes it complete. Now, if you've been at City Press for any amount of time, you'll know that I'm headed straight for this Lewis quote. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to discover a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people you care because the people with you care no more for it than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. The completion, the, the consummation, The making full of our joy is precisely in the expression of our joy to one another. And joy is one of those elusive objects that you can't obtain directly. You can't go out and say, I'm going to go buy some joy. I'm going to go get some of that joy. Joy is the indirect result, a byproduct of an indirect pursuit. I don't share my joy of soccer in in order to produce joy. I find soccer to produce some happiness in me, and I share that with others in order to complete that joy. John says we proclaim these things that our joy may be complete. John is not saying that the proclamation of Christ is what causes that joy, but rather the proclamation has already produced joy in John, and that out of that modicum of joy, he is proclaiming Christ to others in order that the joy may be more abundant, more complete. John's joy and the joy of this church is made complete. It is made more abundant, more full, precisely because it is shared with one another. The praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Brothers and sisters, has this gospel produced a joy in you? A joy so abundant that it spills out in its proclamation to everyone around you. A joy that is made complete, made full by its sharing. 
Does the gospel get you out of bed in the morning? In Steinbeck's East of Eden, there's a description of the Salinas River. From both sides of the Salinas Valley, little streams slip out of the hill canyons and fell into the bed of the Salinas River. In the winter of wet years, the streams ran full freshet and they swelled the river until sometimes it raged and boiled, banks full. Then when the late spring came, the river drew in from its edges and the sandbanks appeared. And in summer, the river didn't run at all above ground. Some pools would be left in the deep swirl places under a high bank. My friends, our joy in the gospel is like the Salinas River. We can't expect to always be overflowing with joy. Life is hard. Tragedy and injustice, they're real. Lament is necessary. We aren't called to point erictus at our suffering. My joy is overflowing. My joy is complete. My father just died. My mother has cancer. My joy abounds. No, no. Just like the Salinas River is driven underground, so too will there be times where our joy is driven underground. But that's the point of joy. It doesn't become absent from our lives. It's a deep current that sometimes is hidden in dark places, just sustaining us, just reminding us of our adoption in Christ. But by God's grace, at other times, this deep current, this deep river comes alive on the surface, creating lush greenery all over, grasses bursting forth and flowers blooming. Our joy bursts out and we cannot help but keep it in. My friends, do you know this joy? Do you have this joy? There must be a river of joy from which you can draw. And this river comes through the hearing of the gospel, hearing the good news that you can be made right with God. That Christ has come and lived and died and been resurrected, that you can have fellowship with our maker. And once we've heard and received and believed this gospel, we have this river of joy that flows through us. That will sometimes be hidden underground, leaving the ground patched, cracked, and dry. But our promise is that this little underground stream will become a raging torrent of joy, causing lilies and poppies and lupin to burst forth. Our joy is made complete. Our joy is made full in the sharing of this gospel with one another. And this is precisely why it is such a privilege to be with you up here this morning. I have an opportunity to share with you the reason that I have for joy. And in doing so, my joy is made complete. It is made more abundant through the sharing with you. My friends, John is stating that this is so. His joy is made complete through the sharing of the gospel. But he is also inviting you and me. We can have our joy made complete if we proclaim the good news of our eternal, incarnate God. Do you want that joy? Let's pray. God, you are eternal. You have been from the beginning and will continue forever. And you took on flesh and came down to our sinful and broken world that you might reconcile us 
to yourself, that you might fundamentally change who we are, that we might have fellowship with you, that we might know you, that we might be your sons and daughters. And in doing so, not only have you reconciled us to yourself, but you have reconciled us to one another. God, let that be the truth that springs forth in this church today. Let, this be, let that be the truth that springs forth in this church from now. Knowing that we are united in you, we fellowship together in you, that our very being has been fundamentally united in you, and from that we share that good news. We proclaim that gospel to one another and to the whole world, knowing that in doing so our joy is made complete. God, we pray that you would pour out this joy upon all of us. We pray that our joy might be made complete in the sharing of your good news to all those around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.